Hey everybody! You are listening to the Creative BioLabs podcast, the show that introduces the basics about stem cells and their broad applications. Please contact us if you have any questions or suggestions. And don't forget to subscribe to follow the latest updates. Dear friends in the audience, you are welcome to listen to our program on time every Saturday night. Today, our sharing guest on the podcast is Dr. Benjamin Smith, who is well known to us. Let's welcome him with your warm applause. Would you say hello to our audience, Dr. Smith? Good evening, all dear followers of this podcast. Good evening, Connie, it is quite nice to see you again. Thank you for your kind invitation. I'm very excited to be here. The development of mammalian embryos is a mysterious and precise process. During the first cleavage divisions, the totipotent blastomeres of the mammalian embryo separate and become committed to the extraembryonic, somatic, and germline lineage, losing developmental capacity. In mice and humans, pluripotent embryonic cells can be isolated from the early embryo and maintained in culture as embryonic stem cells. It is essential to figure out the development of mammalian embryos at the stages of pre-implantation and the earliest post-implantation. At least it can serve as a basis for understanding the developmental potency of embryonic stem cells. Why don't we start by learning about pre-implantation development? Normally, a sperm meets and fuses with the oocyte in the oviduct where fertilization occurs in a mammal. In consequence, the oocyte nucleus, arrested at metaphase 2, completes meiosis and the pronuclei from the two parents, then fuse to form the diploid zygotic nucleus. After fertilization, as part of epigenetic reprogramming during pre-implantation development, progressive DNA demethylation of first the paternal and then the maternal genomes begin. The stages at which transcription of the embryonic genome begins are different in mice and humans, the two-cell stage and the four-to-eight-cell stage, respectively. Until then, the embryo is completely dependent on maternal mRNA. However, maternal transcripts are rapidly degraded after embryonic genome activation, although maternally encoded proteins may continue to be present and serve important functions. The embryo will continue cleavage divisions without significant growth. This is because it passes through the protective glycoprotein code Zona Zona Pellucida and enters the uterus through the oviduct. As far as I know, a mammalian embryo undergoes a process known as compaction during early development to become a compact smooth spherical structure, called the morula. At what stage does this occur? What are the main events? Formation of a morula occurs at the 8-cell stage in mice and the 8-16-cell to 16 cell stage in humans. During this process, all blastomeres flatten, maximize their contacts, and become polarized. The polarization results in the formation of two distinct zones of their cytoplasm. The apical zone gathers endosomes, microtubules, and microfilaments, while the nucleus moves toward the basal zone. Besides, gap junctions form basally for ensuring communication between blastomeres and numerous microvilli, and tight junctions are formed apically. What would happen after compaction? 
The main event is that the presumptive trophectoderm cells form the outer layer of the embryo after compaction. Intercellular contacts between these cells strengthen to form a true epithelium. This thin single cell layer forms a series of junctional complexes, such as gap junctions, desmosomes, and tight junctions. In addition, the composition of the basal and apical membranes of trophectoderm cells is more differentiated. For example, ion pumps accumulate in the basal membrane and actively transport sodium ions into the embryo, which results in the accumulation of water molecules, possibly via aquaporins. In a process called cavitation, a fluid-filled cavity, known as the blastocyst cavity, is thus formed on one side of the embryo. In the process of cavitation, what changes does the embryo undergo? First, during cavitation, the presumptive inner cell mass cells remain in close association. This is not only because of the gap junctions, tight junctions, and interdigitating microvilli between cells, but also because the processes from trophectoderm cells anchor the inner cell mass at one pole of the embryo and isolate part of it from the blastocele. Then, the intercellular permeability seal of trophectoderm cells can avoid fluid loss. As a result, the blastocelic cavity gradually expands thereby occupying most of the blastocyst between the 64 and 128 cell stages. It is noteworthy that the embryo is bilaterally symmetrical rather than radially symmetrical around the embryo-obembryonic axis, as the zona zona pellucida is slightly oval. I think you are right. How will inner cell mass and trophectoderm develop from Morla down the road? The trophectoderm consists of two subpopulations, the polar trophectoderm contacting the inner cell mass and the neural trophectoderm surrounding the blastocelic cavity. As development proceeds, polar trophectoderm produces extraembryonic ectoderm including the placenta without promoting the embryo proper. Similarly, the cells of the inner cell mass are composed of a mixture of two subpopulations initially distributed in a salt and pepper way. However, because of the adherence differences, one of these subpopulations segregates to the surface of the inner cell mass. There it contacts the blastocelic cavity and differentiates into the primitive endoderm, which is also an extraembryonic tissue. Inner cell mass is capable of producing both the embryo proper and the extraembryonic mesoderm. The latter provides cells for the visceral yolk sac, amnion, chorion, and the allantois, a structure that will later develop into the umbilical cord. The embryo remains within the zona zona pellucida during pre-implantation development to prevent premature implantation while it is still in the oviduct. In lower vertebrates, the body axes are already specified in undivided eggs or very soon thereafter. What about the situation in mammals? The body axis specification in the mammalian embryos was thought to be completed only at gastrulation when the primitive streak appears. However, in the case of the mouse, the first morphological sign of axis determination is supposed to be the migration of the slightly cuboidal visceral endoderm at the distal tip of the embryo towards the more anterior part. And, the formation of the anterior visceral endoderm at about embryonic day 6. According to data, even earlier, 
The anterior-posterior axis of the embryo is molecularly determined. At about embryonic day 4, asymmetric expression of the gene lefty one on one side of the primitive endoderm will ultimately correspond to tilt. Mammalian embryos are extremely plastic and able to ignore disturbances such as the removal or reaggregation of blastomeres. As such, the view of relatively late axis determination may be more feasible. Is there any chance that the mammalian body axis is specified at the time of fertilization? Just like in lower vertebrates? This is a very good question. Some studies do support the notion that zygotes in mammals may be polarized and that the body axis may be specified in a similar rule to lower vertebrates at the time of fertilization. I would like to introduce you to one concept, namely the first cleavage plane. It can be referred to as the position of the animal pole marked by the second polar body, the sperm entry point triggering calcium ion waves, or the plane defined by the two pronuclei in the mouse zygote. However, it is unclear whether the position of these cues directly affects the polarity of the zygote and the subsequent position of the first cleavage plane. Alternatively, the intrinsic asymmetry already presents in the oocyte may determine the polarity of the zygote, the location of the second polar body, and the sperm entry point. Oocytes have been shown to have an asymmetric distribution of mitochondria and other factors, such as leptin and signal transducer, and activator of transcription 3. Can the first cleavage plane determine the fate of the two blastomeres? This cannot be concluded yet. Even if the first cleavage plane coincides with the embryonic of embryonic boundary of the blastocyst, the fate of the two blastomeres is difficult to distinguish and predict. It has been reported that blastomere-containing sperm entry points usually divides first and preferentially contributes to the embryonic region of the blastocyst, while its sister cell tends to form the abembryonic region. However, parthenogenetic eggs that do not contain a sperm entry point are also able to divide and develop into blastocysts, even if there is no tendency for the two blastomeres. This suggests that the position of sperm penetration is not necessary for patterning the embryo during normal development, even though it is related to the late spatial arrangement of the blastocyst. Furthermore, some studies indicate that the two blastomeres are similar, but the embryo of embryonic axis is defined by the ellipsoidal shape of the zona zona pellucida. Anyway, the topographic relationship between the zygote and the blastocyst axis, as well as between the blastocyst and the body axis of the future fetus, remains a controversial issue. In the case of mice, how is the developmental potential of early embryos assessed? In the case of mice, after being transplanted separately into the foster mother, both blastomeres of two cell stage embryos can develop into identical individuals. Isolated blastomeres could be combined with genetically distinguishable blastomeres of the same age. This allowed the engineering of chimeric composites and the assessment of the developmental potential of each blastomere of four and eight cell mouse embryos. It has been found that each blastomere can contribute extensively to both embryonic and extraembryonic tissues and produce living and fertile mice. In general, all blastomeres remain totipotent at these developmental stages. 
In contrast, single-isolated 4-cell stage and 8-cell stage blastomeres could develop just to blastocyst and implantation, but not produce viable conceptus. Why is this so? This is likely since a certain number of cell divisions occurred before the formation of blastocysts. Thus, isolated blastomeres from 4- and 8-cell embryos gave rise to 16- and 8-cell blastocysts, respectively, which differed from the normal 32-cell blastocyst. In addition, blastocysts that are derived from isolated 4- and 8-cell blastomeres contain a progressively small number of cells in the inner cell mass. This makes a minimum number of inner cell mass cells likely to be necessary for survival after the blastocyst stage. The fate of the cell seems to be determined by its position in the blastocyst. Is this view reasonable? It is plausible. For example, cells at the surface of the embryo become trophectoderm, while cells enclosed in the embryo become inner cell mass. Several studies have suggested that molecular heterogeneity, which is already detectable at the four-cell stage, may cause a developmental bias to trophectoderm or inner cell mass, probably by dictating the preferential axis of division. For example, producing two outer cells by symmetric division, or one inner cell and one outer cell by asymmetric division. So, at which stages are the cells with the greatest developmental potency? It is clear that the two-cell subpopulations in 16-cell morula remain plastic. As long as they are at the correct position in the embryo, inside or on the surface, they can produce cells of other lineages. Besides, inner cell mass cells from 32 and 64-cell embryos are still able to contribute to all tissues of the conceptus and are therefore totipotent. After the 64-cell stage, the inner cell mass loses totipotency. However, the potency of trophectoderm cells has been difficult to determine, not only because they are not easily separated from each other because of their tight junctions, but also because they are not easily integrated inside the embryo due to their low adhesiveness. Will the pluripotency of embryonic cells is lost? When mouse embryonic cells are introduced directly into the host blastocyst to produce chimeric embryos or chimeras, they lose the ability to contribute to the embryo. Consistently, stem cells isolated from embryonic or epiblast cells at embryonic days 5.5 and 6.5 also cannot form chimeras. Notably, Epiblast cells are capable of producing teratocarcinoma when introduced directly into genetically identical adult mice. Such tumors contain differentiated tissue from the three germ layers and a population of stem cells called embryonal carcinoma cells. These epiblast-derived embryonal carcinoma cells can also form mouse chimeras after being introduced into the blastocysts. This indicates that the pluripotency of the epiblast, although lost, can be restored to some extent. The same case was observed for primordial germ cells isolated from embryonic day 8.5 mouse embryos that were cultured into embryonic germ cells, as well as adult hematopoietic and neural stem cells. When introduced into blastocysts, they can regain pluripotency and contribute to the embryo. So much for our content today. Let's thank Dr. Smith for his wonderful scientific sharing. Thank you for listening. There will be more interesting topics waiting for us in the next program.
See you next time. Thank you. I hope we will see you next time.